Well, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, we're going to be in verses 26 through 28. We'll jump around a little bit. We'll be in chapter 2 briefly as well. But we'll start in in Genesis 1. So I I remember driving down the road one time and on a, a railroad car in a rail yard in graffiti were the words, what is life for? Just a simple question, and it's a good question. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, I think what that in graffiti in an abandoned rail yard tells us is that people are asking this question, but they don't have an answer. They're unsatisfied with the conclusions that they come to. And isn't that the story of humanity? We try and we try to, to fill this need for purpose. We try and we try to fill and answer the question of what are we here for? Why does human life exist? What are people for? And we're unsatisfied with the conclusions that we come to. But yet people keep trying. It's like built into us that there is purpose. There is an answer. There is some solution somewhere. And sin blinds us to it, and yet the answer is there. And somehow, fundamentally, in our heart, we know that there is some purpose. And so over the past month or so, we have, we have focused on Genesis 1 and 2. And so we haven't hit the fall yet, Genesis 3, and yet so much of what we talk about is necessarily impacted by the fact that this is a sinful, a fallen, a cursed world. It's it's self-evident. We don't have to go very far to see that. And so this morning, we're going to continue that theme. We're going to talk about what is the purpose of humanity? What did God make humans for? What what are people for? And we're going to look at it from Genesis 1. And so so the fall hasn't happened yet. Sin hasn't entered the scene. Eve and Adam have not taken the fruit and eaten it. The serpent hasn't deceived. And yet we have to think about this to a certain extent from the perspective of where we sit now, which is in a broken world which is in a world that's, that's tainted and distorted and broken by sin. And so, so as we talk through this, I think my, my encouragement to you would be, uh, we're going to talk about it primarily from Genesis 1. And so the fall hasn't happened. There's no sin yet. We're just talking about what did God intend from the beginning in the creation of, of humanity, of people. And yet we have to layer onto this, and we have to think about this from our perspective now. And we'll get there over the coming weeks. We're going to get to Genesis 3. We'll talk about the fall and how this derails seemingly uh, what, what, it is that God, what it is that God set up in the Garden of Eden. And yet my encouragement for you this morning is to use your spirit-filled, sanctified imagination to take this and to then apply it to your situation now, after the fall. And to, to then layer on all of the scriptures that talk about and that, that kind of tweak and refine God's purpose post-fall in a world that needs redemption. And so, so let me pray for us, um, and then we'll, we'll read the passage, we'll walk through it, and uh, we'll go from there. Let me pray. Lord, I'm grateful this morning for your word. I'm grateful for the clarity of truth that it speaks to the fundamental questions that we ask. We ask the question, what are people for? What is life for? And your word gives a very clear, definitive answer. And so this morning, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see it. I pray that you'd give us hearts to to love it. And then you'd give us hands and feet to obey it as we go out. And so, Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Break down the boundary between what we consider spiritual and what we consider secular. Uh, What we consider just our ordinary lives that really don't have any bearing on you or who you are. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us a vision of life that's holistically lived before you for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. Uh, amen. Let me read uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So look down with me there and let's read it. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
Jump over to, to chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 15. And we'll kind of layer this on to chapter 1, verse 20, 28. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So our approach this morning is going to be pretty simple. We're just going to ask three questions, try to answer them. So the first is, what does this mean? What's the truth here? What's the interpretation of these passages? Second question, how do we do this? What are the guiding principles? What are the values that should keep us on the train tracks that God designed for us? How, how do we do this? Uh, what, what constrains us? What governs us in this pursuit of our purpose? That's the second question. The third question, what does this look like? Let's just talk through some practical examples, application. What does this look like in everyday life to pursue God's purpose? So we'll go, we'll go back. Question one, what does this mean? So look back at the text, verse 27. It says, it says uh, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we have this truth that we're made in the likeness, in the image of God, as male and as female. And so, so there's one way in which this is really easy to understand. Uh, in some way, we're like God. Now, reading the rest of Genesis 1 and 2, it's also self-evident that there are ways that we are not like God. God speaks and stuff happens. I can't just say, hey, let there be a thunderstorm and there's a thunderstorm. But the book of Job, you see God say, I command the clouds. Have you ever lifted up your voice and said, let a, let a flood of waters cover you? We can't do that. So we're different than God in many ways. But in some way, we're like God. And that's what this verse is saying. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in his image? And I, and I think the answer is found in verse 28. So, so look at verse 28. And I think the primary explanation of this image of God, the likeness of God, what does it mean to be made in his image is found in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this is, this is, this is important. God blessed humanity. He set them apart. He showed them favor. So it's, it's evident from Genesis 1 and 2. He's the, he's the creator. He's the king. He's the ruler. He has dominion. And he singles out humanity for a particular blessing. And what is the blessing? It's authority. It's dominion. It's a measure of God's commanding presence as his image bearers. God appoints Adam and Eve in this verse, and by extension, all of us, all of humanity, as his stand-in, as, as his representative for the oversight of his creation. He's saying to Adam and Eve, hey, this is mine, but I'm giving it to you to take care of. So you have a measure of my authority. I'm giving you some of my authority, some of my dominion, some of my, uh, my, my power to a certain extent, if you want to think about it that way, to, to rule over the creation that I've given to you. And, and so I think this is the primary explanation of the image of God in humanity. It's, it's dominion and it's oversight, it's authority. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives here on earth. No other creature is given that particular blessing in this narrative. And so when humanity fell in Genesis 3, you then have to ask the question, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they fell and they sinned, they disobeyed God. Did we lose this authority? Did we lose this image of God? And it's clear from the rest of scripture that we did not. You read Psalm 8, the psalm that we read for our call to worship. It's very clear that it's distorted, it's broken, it's defaced, it's tainted, it's muddied, but we did not lose the image of God because it's intrinsic to who we are. It's who God made us to be. He has given us this authority, and that's the primary way in which we are like him. And that plays itself out in our creativity, that plays itself out in our, our love for each other. Those are other ways that we're like God. But the primary way, I believe, from this text is that, that we are given a measure of his authority. And so we're to, be, uh, we're to be the expression of God to the planet. We're to be the expression of God's dominion over the planet. And so just kind of hold these ideas, and we're going to explain them as we move. 
We represent him. We're his children. He's our father. And we're given a measure of his authority. And so, so that's who we are. That's who we are as image bearers. But, but what does it mean? How does it play out? What did God intend for us to do with this image-bearing responsibility? So he's given us authority. Anybody that you have authority and you give them a piece of that authority, you have a purpose for them. There's a reason you do it. And so God has a role for us, a purpose, and I think this is it. God has created a planet of raw potential. God has created a planet that is undeveloped. Uh, he, he builds a garden, Eden, to give us kind of a template, a pattern for what he wants us to do. But the rest of the planet, he leaves undeveloped. He's created all of this, this potential, this possibility. And what he's given us, the dominion and the authority to, to subdue it and to cultivate it and to nourish it and to build it is go out and build what I've built in Eden. Take that as a pattern and go out and spread that into the world. And so we are stewards. A steward is a caretaker. We're meant to take care of and develop God's world for his glory. A steward doesn't do anything for themselves. They enjoy the bounty of what they're given authority over, but, but the goal is for the owner. The purpose is for the owner that has given them that authority. And so God developed Eden as this meeting place. It's a sanctuary in which man, Adam and Eve, meet with God. And he said, go and spread this. Build this out. Uh, enlarge the, the boundaries of the garden. Uh, so G.K. Beale, he's a theologian, and he, he describes this reality this way. The intention seems to be that Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the order of the garden sanctuary into the outer spaces. This outward expansion would include the goal of spreading the glorious presence of God. So let me just give a couple of examples now. Before We'll get to more examples later on towards the end. But I want to just get a taste of this now in practice to make this kind of concept, this abstract, real. So God created sound. He created frequencies. And, and we built instruments. And we wrote songs. That's a fulfillment of what it is that God did. He built the raw potential of sound. But he didn't hand us an instrument and teach us to play it. We developed that as his image bearers with the dominion that we have over creation. Trees. God planted trees in the garden and in the world. We take those trees and we build shelter with them. We, we use them for warmth. We use them to build furniture and structures. And so we take the raw potential of the wood and we develop it into something that's useful for his glory and for our good. Think about something that's a little bit more abstract. You think about energy and physics. God created all of the laws of nature, and we have had to learn them and study them and dive deeply into them and then use them, have dominion over them and use them for the good of humanity and ideally for the glory of God. But post-fall, that's often not the case. Think about kids. So th this passage, we'll get here towards the end again, but think about children. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Kids are the, the most valuable raw potential that this planet has to offer. And so as parents and as grandparents and as aunts and uncles, our call is to cultivate and to develop and to train and to nurture in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, this raw potential that God has given to us. We have to do it with every new generation. Uh, God gives us this raw potential and he expects that we will use it wisely. Think about food. You know, God gave fruits and vegetables, plants. We have taken those and we have created ingredients. So think about coffee. Uh, I like coffee. Who was the first person who said, I'm going to pick this coffee berry. I'm going to pull the fruit off. I'm going to dry the bean. I'm going to wash the bean. I'm going to then roast the bean until it makes a funny cracking sound. After that, I'm going to pound it up. I'm going to pour hot water over it. And then they take the first sip and they're like, that is disgusting. It's the worst thing I've ever had. And every day for the rest of their life, they drink a cup of coffee because it's wonderful and terrible all at the same time. That, that's the potential of the planet. Under every rock, inside every seed, there's this potential that God has given to us that whether we want to or not, it's what humanity does. We don't have a choice, and we'll get here later. It's just a matter of whether we do it for God or whether we do it for ourselves. Because we do it. It's what we do. It's who we are. We can't not do it. God made it to be that way. So let's just start building a central idea here. This is the end of that first question. What do, what do these passages mean? Uh, let's start to build kind of a central idea here. 
So this is it. We, as humans, have been given a measure of authority and purpose as God's image, as God's image bearers to develop the raw potential of the planet. So let me just say that again. That's the, that's the beginning of our, kind of our raw idea, our central idea. We, as humans, have been given a measure of authority and purpose as God's image bearers to develop the raw potential of the planet. So that's question one. Question two, how do we do this? What are the values that guide us on our way? What are the principles that should govern this pursuit? What does it look like? There's four ideas I want to mention here, and we'll move through them. The first is God's glory. This is meant to be the driving force behind all human activity in God's world. You, you don't have to look very far in Scripture to find that it's the glory of God that is the preeminent thing. He is glorious, and he deserves glory, and his creation is for his glory. And so it, 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 de it de declares his majesty. And so the first motivating, guiding factor as we pursue this commission, this, this, this command to take the raw potential and to develop it, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, is we need to do it for God, for his glory. But we don't even have to venture outside of Genesis 1 to find this. You could go to a lot of other passages, and, and that would be legitimate, but we don't have to go beyond Genesis 1 to do this. Let me just give you a thought experiment to prove it. If you have a photo or a painting in your house of Grand Canyon National Park, why is that photo important? Is it the photo itself? Is it the image itself that matters? Now, sometimes those images are beautiful, and the paintings are, are, are gorgeous, but they have no meaning without the real thing. They have no meaning without the source itself. That painting elevates the real thing. That painting makes you want to visit the real thing. That painting makes you want to experience the real thing. It points towards the reality. We are the image bearers of God. And so our built-in uh, built purpose, our built-in motivating fuel is that it's for God's glory. If our main identity as an, is as an image, then our main goal is to point to the reality behind the image. We are made, you and I, for the glory of our creator. That's what it means to be made in his image. We're meant to carry the knowledge and the experience of God himself into the wide world. Uh, Adam was meant to take what he knew of God from personal communion. He walked with God in the garden, and he was meant to take that experience and spread it into the rest of the planet. And so a couple of things. One, this, this doesn't just mean that we're meant to develop the world physically. It does mean that. We're meant to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate, uh, you know, develop. But it also means that we're to take the truth of God and spread it across the planet, the truth and the glory of God. So Habakkuk 2, you don't need to turn there, but it comments on this as the goal of the world when it says that there will be a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the goal. God built that in as the goal. One day, the creation itself will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, full of people who acknowledge that glory, full of people who worship him for his splendor. Romans 11:36. From him, through him, to him are all things. Everything's about him. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So another way to think about this, and this starts to frame it maybe a little bit more in New Testament terms, is that we're first called to love God. Uh, when we think about the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor, the first call is that we love God. He's our first reality. Our devotion is first to him, then to what he has made. He's the goal. Uh, and, and as sinners... You know, you think about Romans 1, we readily substitute the creation for the creator. We take things that he has made and we make them more important than him. That could be a job, it could be a person, it could be money, it could be success. We take the physical world, the things around us, the things that he's created, and we elevate them above him. And so as sinners, that's the caution. We have to be aware of that and we have to, uh, we have to fight against that in the power of the Spirit. And so the first priority as we pursue this creation mandate, God's glory. Second, second value, second governing principle. And it's this, community. So the first is God's glory and the second is 
community. This was always meant to be a community effort, not a solo endeavor. Male and female, he created them. God formed a community from the beginning. He did not just form Adam and send him out into the world and say, hey, do your best. He created male and female, Adam and Eve, the institution of marriage, but that also represents the broad community of humanity. And he gave it to them as a communal task. They were meant to pursue this alongside each other. They were not meant to pursue this alone. And so we already mentioned the male-female covenant in marriage, Adam and Eve, first marriage. Um, but look to the rest of Scripture, and God, God appoints groups of people to pursue his mission. You think of Israel, and God sets aside this nation, and he calls them to continue to pick up the torch and, and to, to carry out his mission for humanity. And then you think about the New Testament, you think about the church, where the body, where the family, where living stones built into a temple. None of us have, uh, we have value as God's image bearers, but we have not the effectiveness that we have together. As, as individuals, we're limited in our effectiveness. As a community, we, we are, are given strength and we're given, we're given power. And so, so the pictures that God gives of this, this collective people, were called to carry out his purpose in the world. Uh, we're, we're called a body. You see that in 1 Corinthians 12. We're called a family. You see that in Ephesians 2. We're a building made up of individual stones, 1 Peter 2. Uh, and so the collective goal is what we just talked about, the glory of God. But the way we do that is by loving our neighbor and by serving alongside our neighbor as we pursue this commission to, to develop the planet. And so I think the charge for us is this, as we think about this idea that this is meant to be a community effort. If we're, if we're out to do this alone, this is, this is a, you know, I think it's a particularly American. Um, I, I've never lived anywhere else, so maybe it's, maybe it's everywhere. It probably is to a certain extent. But I think there's a particularly American and a particularly New England uh, identity here as the autonomous, rugged individual. We want to do things on our own. We don't want to accept help. We want to be a fortress unto ourselves. This tears that down and says, if you're, on, if you're on this journey alone, if you're doing this as a solo endeavor, you're not going to succeed. This is meant to be a shared effort. Uh, this is meant to be a community purpose. And, and so I, I think the charge for us is to break free from that autonomous mindset, that independent mindset, the, 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 the mindset that's so prevalent in our culture, and to ask for help and to offer help and to be together, do things, uh, do things together that you could do alone even though it's not as efficient. Now there's a place for efficiency, but I do sometimes think that we try to be more efficient than God is. God is not as pragmatic as we are. God is not as concerned about his uh, efficiency as we are. Some things that God does are pretty slow. And I think we could learn from that and, and learn to value the community endeavor, the community aspect of what we do, and in that, find that we're accomplishing more than we thought we could. So those are kind of the broader motivational principles. Love for God, love for neighbor. Glorify God, do this as a community. But the third kind of guiding value, motivating value, is, is this. Our work in the world is a combination of beauty and necessity. Now, you might ask, where am I getting that? That sounds kind of hippie. Where are you getting it from? Go, go to chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Two categories. Necessary. That's food. We need food. We need shelter. Beautiful. That's pleasant to the sight. God did not create a boring world. God did not create an ugly world. God did not make a mistake in making the world this glorious place. I mean, you walk outside on a day like today in the morning, and you're just struck with the beauty of creation. You should be struck with the beauty of, crea of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. So, so just think, think about this. If you, if you go out to a garden today and there's flowers, you'll probably see a butterfly. A butterfly is an inefficient creature. It has to be in the sun to survive because it has to be warm. It doesn't move from flower to flower very quickly. I mean, you think about a bee. A bee is efficient. I like bees. I like butterflies too. I like bees. 
Butterflies are very inefficient. They flutter around and they, they, they take the longest path possible from one flower to another. Why did God make them that way? So you can see them better. They're slow. You can see, if they were fast like a bee, you would never enjoy the beauty of a monarch. God made the world in this, from our perspective, sometimes haphazard, inefficient, not very pragmatic in its intent. I mean, a butterfly could be more efficient, but God didn't make it that way. God made a butterfly to be inefficient so that we could see its beauty. We could enjoy its beauty. God did, God did not just make a pragmatic world that, that fulfills our necessities. God made a beautiful world. And, and so our call, if, if, if our premise is correct, that we're meant to take what's in Eden and spread it, our call is both necessity, we, that's obvious, we, we, we know that one, we need food, but it's also beauty. We're meant to uh, declare the beauty of our creator as we take his beautiful planet and develop it into more beautiful, functional things. Uh, God did not create the world a sparse place either. So he didn't create it an ugly place, but he certainly didn't create it a sparse place. He created it with an abundance of provision for our every need. We have plants for food and for shelter. We have rivers for water. We have sun for warmth. Nothing that we need is absent from the world around us. God gives us each day our daily bread through the provision of his creation. So C.S. Lewis mentions these two categories kind of in a different way. He reframes it a little bit and he says this, there are some things which have survival value, food, shelter, and there are some things which make survival valuable. That's beauty. That's, that's the, the, from the category in Genesis 1, pleasant to the sight, a world that is beautiful to live in and behold. And, and all of that, again, let's not forget the, the first point here, for the glory of God. It declares his, his glory. So let me just, kids, let me grab your attention here for a minute. I want to ask you a question. All the kids, you listen, if you're under 12, have you ever told your parents that you're bored? Has that ever, I don't want to mention any names, but all my kids have said that. Eli, Cadence, and Shepard, all three of them. And do you want to know what I say to them when they, when they say that to me? It's your fault because it's an interesting world, and it deserves all the attention that you can give it. God did not make a boring world. God made an interesting world. And if you're bored in God's world, that's on you, because there's always something to study. There's always something to see. There's always something to think about. There's always something to consider in God's beautiful world. Some things are for survival. Some things are for beauty. And rarely are those distinct categories. Most things are a combination of both. They're intertwined uh, in, in this harmony of beauty and necessity. And so we see his generosity in his provision of our physical needs and in his provision for our delight, for our spiritual delight. So I want to move on to the last thing. So this is the last governing idea behind how do we do this. Fourth, there are limits and constraints. We are given dominion, but we are not given absolute authority. There are constraints to what we're allowed to do in creation. We do not have an absolute authority. God does. We have a derived authority. He's given it to us, and he's measured it out. He did not give us the same authority he has. We can't speak things into existence. We can't do things with his creation that he did not intend. We have limits. And so God has defined the scope of our authority in his creation in two ways. I'd like to argue in two books. And, and theologians throughout history have referred to the two books of God. One is the book of nature, and one is the book of scripture. We'll talk about the book of nature first, and then we'll move on to the book of scripture. What is the book of nature? And this is what we refer to as natural law. Two plus two equals four. It's the way things are, logic, reason, cause and effect. You know, we think about something that's relevant for today, the gender binary, there are male and female. The boundary lines between species, gravity, some creatures live on land, some creatures live underwater. The book of nature tells us that there are natural limits that are self-evident in nature itself. God created and is working through these natural laws. And the book of nature provides boundaries and guidance in our endeavor and in our dominion over the planet. We cannot and we should not drain the oceans. We should not contaminate groundwater. We cannot interbreed cats and dogs. We cannot make a round square. 
I could give more examples. There's logical impossibilities and there's physical impossibilities by which we are limited. And we need to respect those boundaries. We need to respect those lines. Job 38, you don't need to turn there, but verses 8 through 11, it talks about, Job 38 through 42 talks about our limits. Uh, but one of the passages that I think portrays the limits that God has built into creation really clearly is Job 38, 8 through 11. And God says this to Job, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb and prescribed limits for it? He built limits into where the sea goes. He set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Nature itself in God's creative design provides values and guidance that we're obligated to respect. These natural laws are from God, from the mouth of God. He spoke them into existence. Now it's different, and we'll make a distinction here in a minute from the word of God, but God built these natural laws into the world around us, and we're called to study and understand and respect the limitations and the, the guidance that they give us. So that's the book of nature. How do we understand the book of nature, though? And that's the second book, the book of Scripture, His Word. All of nature, all of life, is to be interpreted through the lens of His Word, the Bible. So, so you even think for Adam, Adam was not just dropped into the planet with no instruction. Now, God's voice created the world, but God's voice communicated specific things to Adam. Adam needed God's word, his specific instructive word to understand the world. Even what we read this morning, have dominion over the fish and over the, the land and over the earth itself. Adam needed God's words to him, specifically to him, to understand himself, the world around him, who God is, what the point is, what's the purpose, what am I supposed to be doing here? He needed that. So Psalm 19 is, is one of the passages that really clearly talks about the book of nature being nature itself declaring God's glory, who God is, and then the book of scripture, the word of God. And, and so at the beginning it talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth above proclaims, his, or the skies above proclaim his handiwork. They have a voice that voice is heard. And then the second part of the psalm quickly moves into this, this glorification of God's spoken word, his instruction, his law, his commands, what he's told us specifically. And so at the, at the kind of towards the middle of the psalm, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so it's God's written word, the Bible, helps us understand our experience. Left to ourselves, the psalm indicates, we are simple, we're foolish. But the word, the scriptures, when we study it, when it's illuminated by the spirit, it, it makes us wise to understand the world around us, to understand ourselves, our role, to understand God, and it, most importantly, his, his salvation, his redemption. But then if you read a little further into Psalm 19, there's a warning. And I think this warning is very relevant for, for all ages, but even particularly and pointedly to us. Verse 13 in Psalm 19 says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And so he's just talking about the word of God. Your word brings light. Your word is instruction. Your word makes me wise. It takes away the simplicity of my thought and it gives me a sophistication in my understanding of the world around me. It's a key. It unlocks everything for me. And then he says, Keep back your servant from presumptuous or arrogant sins. Let them not have dominion over me. What is he talking about? I think this prayer on, be, on behalf of the psalmist is a caution. When we ignore God's word, when we, when, we, when we internalize and we come back and we elevate our own reason, our own logic, our own ability to think and understand and study, and we minimize God's word and put it in a second place, it leads to arrogance. It leads to a willingness to redefine and reimagine God's world in our own image rather than in God's image. And so the call from the psalm, I believe, is that we never reverse that order. We never elevate our logic and our reason and our thinking, our ability to understand above Scripture. Scripture is the key. It's not our understanding that unlocks Scripture. It's Scripture that helps us understand. 
And so when we elevate reason and logic and philosophy and knowledge and science, and then we read it into scripture, it leads to presumptuous sins. It leads to arrogance. But when we read scripture first and say, okay, how does this help me understand life? It leads to wisdom. And it leads to a life that glorifies God. Let me just quote Grant Horner. So he wrote a book on, on Christian education, Christian worldview. And I think he, he, he summarizes really well what it is that we're getting at here. He's talking about education, but take the principles and apply them more broadly. He says, students study the full range of human cultural production so as to bring it under the lordship of Christ and scripture. The goal is to develop thinkers, and this is key, who know God and his word first and mankind and its work second, and who know how to interpret and understand everything in the second category, so second category is mankind and his work, based upon a right understanding of the first, God's word. So let me just say that again. The goal is to develop thinkers, and this is for all of us, who know God and his word first, mankind and its work second, that's the natural world, and who know how to interpret and understand everything in the second category, mankind, in light of the first category, scripture. The revelation of the Bible is the key that unlocks the door of all learning. The word opens up a world worth knowing. That's, that's such a cutting phrase. The word opens up a world worth knowing. Devoid of God, this is not a world worth knowing. Devoid of God, we trend towards nihilism. Nothing matters. There's no purpose. Who cares? With God, it's, it's infused with life and meaning. With God and an understanding from his word, everything comes alive. Everything's bright with color. So let's just finish. So this is the end of our second question. Let's just finish the main idea that we began in our first question. Here it is. We as humans have been given a measure of authority and purpose as God's image bearers to develop the raw potential of the planet. That's the first part. Here's the second part. We develop that raw potential along the parallel and often intertwined lines of necessity and beauty. Things that are beautiful and things that we need for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbors, and for the peaceful flourishing of the earth. So let me just say the whole thing again. This is our main idea. We as humans have been given a measure of authority and purpose as God's image bearers to develop the raw potential of the planet along the parallel and often intertwined lines of necessity and beauty. And we do this for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbor, and for the peaceful flourishing of the earth. So question three, what does this look like? What are some examples of this. And I'm sure if you're like me, your mind's already starting to kind of flesh this out in reality, taking these concepts. That's what people do. That's what humans do. We take concepts and we, we, we move them into reality, evidence of what we're talking about. We take ideas and we build on them. We flesh them out. We live them out. But what does this look like uh, in reality? What are some examples? What does this look like in everyday life? Uh, and let me just make a few applications from this, uh, from this truth but, but this is different in some ways for everyone. Everyone has been given a unique set of personality and inclinations and family background and cultural influences that God uses to shape you into who you are. So there is this one calling for all of humanity to take the raw material of planet Earth and develop it, but God gifts us and, and gives us talents and giftings and backgrounds and experiences that lead us in a certain arena that lead us down a certain road of development and of, of effort. And, and so I just want to make a couple of kind of high-level high level, uh, applications for this. But use your spirit-sanctified imagination to dive deeper and think through what does this mean and what does this mean in a world that needs redemption? And we'll, we'll end up there. How does this tie with the Great Commission? We'll get there as, as we conclude. Uh, but start to think that way. How, how do you do this? How, what does this look like in my life? And how does this add meaning to my life when I feel the drudgery of it? When I just feel the, man, I can't believe it's Monday again and I gotta go back to work and I don't want to. How, 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 do, you, how do you use this truth to, to give purpose to your everyday? There's a sink full of dishes. You're taking raw potential, dirty dishes, 
and, and you're making them useful again. Like, take this truth and apply it to everything. Everything you do in some way falls into these categories, these ideas, this framework that we're talking about. Take it, think about it, apply it. But I want to just kind of give a couple, a couple of examples first. So the first is this, and I think it's obvious from the text. If you are married, cultivate your marriage for God's glory. Adam and Eve, first marriage. You are a team, as a married couple, who has been given the creation mandate that we're discussing this morning. This was first given. Now, it applies to all of humanity, and we'll get there. I don't want to minimize that. But it was given first to Adam and Eve as the first marriage. This was meant to be pursued in the context of marriage. Now, it's also pursued in other ways. I don't want to minimize that. Again, we'll get there. But the first thing you think about as a married couple is, if I'm married, my marriage is in itself potential. It's raw potential for God's glory, for the, for the, for the development of the world around us, for the service of my neighbors, to show mercy to those who need it. Develop your marriage. Cultivate your marriage. Uh, be strategic, be intentional, be tireless, don't be lazy. Uh, consider your gifts, your calling, your place, your resources, and then leverage all of those things for the glory of God, for the good of your neighbor, for the development of the world around you. Second, we've already touched on this, but if you have kids, train them diligently. Kids are valuable, the most valuable raw potential, and, and they depend on you to disciple them. If you're not discipling them, somebody or something is discipling them. It could be YouTube. The algorithm on YouTube disciples more kids today than, than we like to think about. And it guides them and it shapes them unintentionally. But, but that's the world we live in. If you are not discipling your kids and your grandkids, someone or something will. And they will not, more than likely, they will not be discipled for the glory of God and for the good of their neighbor for God's design. They will be discipled in some alternate reality, some alternate purpose. And, and so I think the call on us from the commands of be fruitful, multiply, and, and as our image-bearing status is to fight the laziness of passive parenting, of passive grandparenting, and, and be active, be diligent, be, be in our kids' lives intentionally. Every moment that we spend, you think of that, that verse in, in Matthew 6, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's this eternal weight to our actions here and now. Every moment that we spend discipling, shepherding, training, developing the raw potential of our kids for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbor, lays up an eternal weight of glory in, in eternity. And, and so fight that, fight, we all feel it, fight that, that urge to laziness. You know, we, we are lazy. Humans are lazy. Let's just, let's just be honest. We like to be lazy. We like comfort. We like pleasure. It's easy to not do things. There's some things that are not hard to do, but they're really easy not to do. And, and, and sometimes parenting is hard to do, but there's a lot of it that's not. There's a lot of it that's a great joy and a great privilege when you engage in it strategically and diligently and, uh, and, and when you teach your kids faithfully. And then I think a third, so if you're married and you don't have kids, consider having kids because there's this command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So I understand the complexities of that. There are people who can't have kids and I get that. I understand that there, there are some issues of wisdom and of timing that you consider. But I also understand that scripture itself says, before it even says have dominion, it says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so there's this value placed on reproducing, reproducing, reproduction, the next generation, uh, passing on the truth, the glory of God to children who will fill the planet. And, and you know, I mean, uh, I, the birth rate is lower than it's ever been. And, and, and as Christians, uh, we look at scripture instead of the cultural script as our guide. The, the cultural script would say, there's too many kids in the planet. We're going to be overpopulated and the world's going to blow up. We look at God's word and we say, it says be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Don't always fully understand, you know, what that looks like. But at the same time, I do know that as we continue to, to multiply and to fill the earth as God's people, 
our kids will take up that torch uh, in the will of God, in faithfulness, and they will spread his way and his gospel to, to the world around. And so, so if, if you're married and you can have kids, or consider adoption, consider fostering. Uh, how can we train and develop the raw potential of children for the glory of God? Because we believe this is what they were created for. There is no deeper purpose than God's purpose for them. And so, so how, how can we train them in the purposes of the king? They're going to be trained in some purpose. How can we train them in the purposes of our creator? And then I think if, if you're single or you're married and you don't have kids or you're in a life stage where you're an empty nester, uh, you have to think for yourself, okay, so how, how do I take these truths and how do I strategically think through what does this look like for me here and now? How, how do I develop potential? How do I dive into the, the call to develop the planet? How do I, how do I um, dedicate my life for the glory of God, for the, for the good of my neighbor, and for the fulfillment of this command to cultivate the earth? And that's different for everyone because everyone's different. Everyone has a different personality. Everyone has a different gifting, calling, talents, background. And so, so God shapes you through those things and then it's left for you to say, okay, in, in the guidance of the Spirit, what do I do with this? How do I develop this? How do I live this out? Psalm 111, verse 2, the psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in him. And so I think that the charge from this is to delight in God's works and to study God's works. You know, we, we should be a people who are interested in interesting things. This is an interesting place to live, this world. And we should be, as God's people, interested in studying it and diving into it and reveling in the glory of it. So as we conclude, I just want to offer a couple of, couple of cautions. And these, I think, are, are primarily, primarily fueled by the world that we live in, both our current moment as well as our sinful, cursed world. And the first is this. We live in a world of consumption. We like to consume things. We're a culture that's based on consumption. And yet this call, as God's image bearers, the purpose that God's given to us is a call of contribution, not of consumption. Now, we will consume. We have to eat. We have to sleep. There is you know, beauty, and so there, there should be the, the, the uptake of that beauty, the enjoyment of that beauty. But our, our culture elevates consum consumption of media, of food, of entertainment, of service, of pleasure. Our, our culture would have you addicted to one of the dozen ways to consume all day long. It, and so the, the caution for us is to, to resist that, that, that cultural value of consumption and to instead consider how can I contribute? How can I serve. It's rare that in consumption we're serving another person. It's possible, rare. In contribution, we are by definition serving another person and serving God. And so resist that urge to consume all the live long day. I mean, all the algorithms are designed to keep you on your phone nonstop. Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of those things are meant to pull you in and never let you go. How can you avoid that temptation to consume and instead think creatively, how can I contribute? The second caution is, is this, a cautionary word on motives. We, we said that the, the motives here should be glory of God, love for neighbor. The world is full of, of alternate motives. Greed, power, success, um, reputation, um, pleasure, comfort. There's all of these other things that can motivate the same activities. So we can be developing the planet, we can be just pouring it all into our career, but it's not really because we care about God or our neighbor, it's because we care about money and power. We can even raise our kids because we want to look good in front of our fellow churchgoers. You know, these, altern these alternate motives creep in and they influence us. And so the call from scripture is, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And then the third caution is this, along those same lines, we easily substitute the creator for the creation. We, we, we readily do it. That's our nature as fallen human beings. We exchange the glory of the creator for the glory of the created thing. We make this switch, and we worship what was not meant to be worshipped 
and we devalue what was meant to be worshipped. God was meant to be worshipped. And instead of worshipping God, often we elevate the things of his world above him. He created them to be an avenue of glory to him. And we terminate our, 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 our worth and our value and our glory on these earthly things. And so we have to be aware of that and consider, how am I doing? It's not a question of, are you doing that? It's a question of, how are you doing that? Because that is our tendency. In some ways, that's the nature of all sin, is this substitution of God for created thing. It could be a relationship. It could be, like we spoke of earlier, a, a, a love of money, a love of power, a love of greed, you know, just the, the greed of, of wanting more. There are ways in which we value, all of us, the created world above the creator of that world. And so let me just conclude uh, with a couple of thoughts. One, I just want to remind us, what, it, what, is our main, what is our main idea here? We, as humans, have been given a measure of authority. We've been given purpose as God's image bearers. And that purpose is to develop the raw potential of the planet along these intertwined lines of necessity and beauty for the glory of God, for the good of our neighbors, and for the flourishing of the earth. And we commented on this briefly a moment ago, but all of humanity does this. Whether we want to or not, we do this. Every time you cut a board or you wash a dish or you cook a meal, you're doing this. The question is, will you reap the benefit of doing it for God and for his glory, or will you be short-sighted and do it for yourself and for your own glory, or for the, the glory of the created realm? And so the question is not, will you do this? You are doing this. This is what humanity does. But sin shortchanges us and cuts off our, our desire and our purpose short of God. And, and so the question is, how do we regain that? And that's through the cross, through the resurrection of Christ, through salvation in Christ. We're, re-given, we're given again this, this connection, this relationship with God. And so the last question, this is begging to be asked, I think, is how does this fit with the Great Commission? What, what does this, how does this fit with Matthew 28, Jesus saying, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? So after the fall, this mandate to develop the earth takes on a redemptive tone. It takes on a redemptive theme. So as you go into the world, as God's people, developing and cultivating, training, raising kids, be making disciples. It's not two different commands It's two sides of the same coin. We're called to develop the world as God originally intended, now able to do it again through the redemption we have in Christ, and we're given this added commission to go and make more people who are doing it. Make disciples, disciple the nations, and train them to observe all that God has commanded. That includes this. And so what we're looking at in the Great Commission and what we're looking at in this Creation Commission are two sides of the same coin. God has given us a purpose. The one purpose in creation, the corresponding purpose in redemption. How do we pursue both at the same time? And so we spread out into every industry, into every sector across the globe, using our gifts and our callings to develop the raw potential of the planet. And that's strategic. We're everywhere as God's people. We're we're in banks and we're in machine shops and we're in pharmaceutical development and we're, we're, we're everywhere. That's the point. The point is that we use our gifts and our place in life to develop for God's glory the potential of the planet and to disciple the people around us in his truth. It's two sides of the same coin. Let me end by by reading from 1 Corinthians 15, just as uh, an encouragement. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the purpose it gives us. We pray that you would challenge us to live our lives for your glory, for the good of each other, for the good of our neighbor, for the good of the world. And so, Lord, give us, give us uh, strength to do that. Lord, give us purpose in doing that. On the days where we feel tired and we feel like life is drudgery, we pray that you would awaken us to your purpose for us through your spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.